Hey everybody, Kindle here. On this week's episode of the podcast, we do something a little different. We mostly talk about Ethereum. This is quite a difficult conversation, and I'm open to feedback. So, all right, let's go. another episode of not all at once not all at once jordan are you ever gonna do the uh the intros or you just want me to to carry that burden forever um i'm not opposed to doing it for sure now the tax season's over i'm willing to do anything yeah um, you know how I, I like to start the episode out just giving like a little preview you know it's like hey here's, oh, yeah. here's some of the things that we talk about uh yeah no i love it yeah, no, uh, we'll we'll uh, we can definitely discuss me uh, getting more involved in the intros. So, tax season <laughs> is over, right? So that's a that's a you're happy. Last about I that. heard, yeah, yeah, it looks like it is April 29th today. We're one day late, and that is because of me as well. But I um, mean, yeah, we I'm like ten days into uh, to tax season being over. It's I'm still trying to get used to it. Like we were talking about right before we started recording. I got to the weekend last week and I was like, I don't actually have to work this weekend if I don't want to. So, and I didn't, it was nice. So. Yep. Always good to enjoy your weekend. The weather's really great here too. So it's a yeah. good timing for that. Um, well, all right. What are we going to talk about this week, Jordan? Okay. So to today, I think we should talk about Ethereum. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a elephant in the room. For, for us, obviously, we're, we, you know, I wouldn't say we're Bitcoin maxis by any stretch, but we do enjoy Bitcoin and Ethereum is obviously the number two um, in terms of market caps. So I think we should show, we should show some love to Ethereum in terms of talking about them, uh, talking about the, the coin and the network and everything. And uh, I know, I know just based off of what I've seen you put out on Twitter these past probably two, three weeks. Uh, I already have a sense of what um, what we're going to get into, and then I know you have got a piece, a big piece brewing um, regarding Ethereum, and uh, rumor on the street is that some transactions have been made and uh, in, in some portfolios. So I just want to, I just think we just kind of we just uh, throw throw the topic out there, and um, yeah, let's let's hear what your thoughts are about Ethereum. All right. Elephant in the room. Yes, this is good. We should, uh, I have no problem spearheading the elephant in the room. It will, it will come to no surprise that I am not bullish on Ethereum. I've never been bullish on Ethereum. I have missed out on thousands of percent gains over the past few years. So I am a little bitter about that, <laughs> but, uh, who among but, us has uh, not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we should get into it. the uh, where to begin. Here's the thing: I I don't want to have the I don't want to express the perspective that I am blindly bearish. Um, I 
I want to make sure that I am, I'm thinking about things critically here and, and being realistic about what, what I see, the role of which, of which I think Ethereum may play in the future. I just, I want to, I want to be sure that I am being objective, um, or at least I'm, that's, that's the, that's the intent here. So I did write a piece. I just published it today. Um, and it talks about what we're going to talk about here. If people will link it in the show notes, you're welcome to go read it. I've also posted some tweets over the past, like you said, few weeks that have been quite bearish on Ethereum. Um, so here's the thing. I feel quite bad about, about my perspective on Ethereum. I feel like I'm like the party pooper. I'm like the guy who like is saying the thing out loud that's not supposed to be said out loud. And like, I'm sorry that that's the case, but um, like, I, I want to make sure that I'm being intellectually honest because because um, I, I, I think that that's, that's what I'm here to do. Like I'm here to find what I, what I think is the most um, convincing truth and uh, and we'll see, we'll see where it takes us. Before I go any further, what are your what are your, what are your thoughts so far? Okay, one thing that comes to mind is like, can you give us a brief if you if you know the story? Like, do you know how Ethereum even came came about? Like, it, it I know it was pretty early. It wasn't the people think it was the one right after Bitcoin. There were some there were some coins that came right after Bitcoin before before Ethereum, right? But I mean, Correct. what's the what is the story with Vita with Vitalik and all that? Can you shed some light on on the origin? Yes, story? this will be, be helpful. Um, what's the year? I think the it was either in 2014 or 2015 or 2016 that Ethereum launched. Um, but let's go back further. Let's talk about Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik Buterin, sort of the iconic leader of Ethereum, co-founder, um, probably the, you know, basically like the head honcho of, of what Ethereum is and has been. Um, Vitalik actually got started, believe it or not, at Bitcoin Magazine. Um, mm. You know, that company that just put on a conference down in Miami? <laughs> he, was, he was one of the earliest employees of Bitcoin Magazine. And wow. uh, I believe he was like in college at the time or just out of high school or something. And he was basically, he was hired to be our technical writer for Bitcoin magazine. Um, so his roots got started in Bitcoin. He actually, he's a software developer, computer scientist. And he actually, I think, participated in Bitcoin development in the early days, like 2013, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. Um, I don't know how much of a contribution he made. I'm sure he, there are commits in the GitHub repo for Bitcoin core from Vitalik Buterin. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. The point is, is that he actually originated from Bitcoin. Um, then basically the idea with Ethereum was to create a general purpose blockchain. So rather than Bitcoin, which is strictly money on the blockchain, um, the intent of Ethereum was to create a blockchain that was uh, for general purpose use, use cases. Um, Strictly, I think about blockchains as the most, see today blockchains are being used for things like NFTs and gaming, 
But I think that ultimately that's a cultural movement and not a sustainable industrial movement. When I think about the industrial use case of blockchains, it's purely financial. And so Hmm. um, like the, and we also see, we have things like DAOs too, which are like decentralized autonomous organizations, not really financial, but uh, okay. I'll get to, I'll get more of that later, but yeah. So originally Ethereum was made its general purpose. Uh, There was this narrative for a while that it was a world computer. Um, And Naval Naval Ravikant has a very good, a useful perspective here that I like to think about, think about Ethereum through, which is that Ethereum is basically like a shared computer. Um, And you are like, it's a, it's an, it's an immutable computer. And so once it's like, you can't delete from the database, like once the data gets data gets added to the database, it can't be deleted. So what all the users are doing essentially are participating in a shared computer. Um, it just so happens that that computer is also distributed and it does that for redundancy purposes and, and uh, decentralization purposes. But uh, you can think of it just as a shared computer. Um, okay. So that's, that's the, yeah, that's the, that's the backstory of Ethereum. Now I should say one more thing actually too, which is that Ethereum had a pre-mine. A pre-mine is basically like and uh, essentially like an equity issuance to the, to the early founders or investors, right? So it's not like there was zero ETH on day one and then one ETH on day two. It was like at the start, there was X amount of ETH already distributed to the early, you know, the founders basically. Yeah. Um, and, then it, and then it got kickstarted from there. Yeah. And it's important to note, I guess, as well, that ETH is... Um was and is right now a proof of work uh protocol similar to bitcoin um but what for like the last six years or maybe even since really since it started um it's been talking about we're going to proof of stake we're going to proof of stake and then it keeps getting pushed back further and further um and now the latest narrative is that it's supposed to go to proof of stake eth 2.0 is supposed to happen later this year we will see but all that's because Ethereum has had problems scaling. Is that right? Okay. So this is where a lot of the conflation occurs. Proof of stake versus proof of work has nothing to do with scale. I've okay. heard, I heard some boomers like a couple weeks ago on a podcast talking about this. And I was like, I was like, I cannot believe that I'm hearing like a 50 year old <laughs> man try to try to explain this to me. Okay. No, see, uh, scaling just happens through the block size and the block time. So how, how much throughput is moving through the network? Proof of stake versus proof of work is a difference of who has authority to um, earn issuance of new coins. Uh, so in the, in the event of proof of work, you have miners which contribute, which expend real capital, real energy in order to uh, earn new coins, right? In the case of proof of stake, you you don't have any real capital expenditure. You're using your existing Ethereum supply to generate new Ethereum. So the problem with proof of stake versus proof of work is actually a problem of um, competition. And what you the real problem with decentralization is the mint. Like this is what Satoshi solved: is the minting of new coins. You want that to be decentralized and fairly um, open to to all market participants. In the event of proof of stake, 
uh, that's not the case. You have to have ETH in order to, in order to um, earn, earn new coins. Of course, you can say that, you can say that, well, in order to earn new Bitcoins, you have to have miners, mining rigs, and you have to have access to energy. This is also true. The problem is, again, it's a story of competition. What you really want is highly competitive markets that are competing after those new coins. Now, in the event, in the case of proof of work, that's that's what happens. You have real, like a lot of companies around the world are fiercely competing to to earn or to own part of the hash rate. Whereas with proof of stake, there is no market competition. The market competition is how much capital can you can you lever up, basically. Um, and so it's inherently centralizing versus decentralizing. Yeah, especially if you think about how much it is. Okay, this might be a, uh, a incorrect thing I've heard, but I think I've heard at one point that 70% of Ethereum's uh, like supply was pre-mined. Is that, do we know exactly or is that way high? I don't know the numbers. I think that's around about correct. I should say too that Ethereum is basically so poorly managed that there isn't like a really confident way to audit the ledger historically. So you can't even really say to, you know absolutely what what is the case. Wow. And then and then essentially once once it moves over to a proof of stake protocol then all of then the 70%, let's just call it that 60, 70, whatever you want to say that those um, holders, the holders or the holder or whatever of those coins, they get to make all the rules. Right. And, and then in a lot of ways, I don't know if I'm thinking about it, it just kind of sounds like the world we already live in. Um, where That's right. If you're closest so like, to the money spigot. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem is, is like exchanges will basically come to, own these blockchains because exchanges custody of a vast majority of the outstanding supply of these coins. And, uh, and if you own the coins then you own the political authority to control the network, there have been, there's been studies like, uh, Tezos is a blockchain. It was one of the earliest proof of stake blockchains and a guy named Justin Sun. I don't know if you know who Justin Sun is, but he's a renowned scammer. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think people, some people would have probably issue with me saying that, but I think that it's basically accepted to be true. Uh, he basically levered up uh, like a capital position to overtake the Tezos network and like basically attacked the network through through proof of stake, you know, capital. Um, mm. And in fact, that actually just happened like last week. There was a hack on a chain. I don't know the details. I just heard it in passing. There was a hack on a chain where the way it worked was somebody levered up heavily and they basically bought a bunch of the coins and then suddenly they have ownership over the network. And now, you know, this is no longer decentralized. This is hundred percent centralized. Right. So mm. the proof of work versus proof of stake thing is a never ending argument, but, um, but yeah, it's definitely has nothing to do with scaling. Okay. There are functionally three types. I, I see three types of decentralized technologies. The first is Bitcoin. The second is financial blockchains. And the, the third is basically non-blockchain decentralized technology. And um, 
I'm just going to focus on that middle one for today, right? So basically, I, I, I talked about this a few minutes ago, but like, I see that, okay, let's, let's think about the global financial markets, which includes things like foreign exchanges, uh, credit markets, which is, you know, bond markets, uh, trading markets, like equity trading, um, repo markets, treasury markets, uh, uh, money market funds, mutual funds, all of these financial instruments, this infrastructure, this is a giant machine that lives in this war on this world, which is the financial engine, right? Yeah. The real problem with the current financial uh, system is it's inherently, uh, it's, it's not equitable in comparison to what our digital technologies offer, right? And that's because like digital technology is new and like, this is a new thing in the world. And most people who run the financial system are boomers. They don't even understand digital technology. So, so, um, but anyway, so the, the, yeah, like the real problem with the financial system is it's not equitable, especially relative to digital technologies. Right now I, what I see most of what people call like crypto or web three is really being spearheaded, um, by financial financial use cases, um, and so and like you can think of basically all those things that I did I mention for FX markets, lending markets, bond markets, all these things, all those things should live like on these blockchains. And when you tell that to a Bitcoiner, they take real problem with that because they think that they think that Bitcoin is competing against what I'm talking about. They think to Remember, one one is Bitcoin, two is financial blockchains, three is non-blockchain technology. Um, they think they conflate one and two. They think those, those are like competing against each other. Those are not competing against each other. These are two different things. They both use the word decentralization because it's, it's mimetic. I don't know. There's some cultural emergence as a natural thing that occurs. I don't understand it, but but they use the same word and they use it differently. In the use mm-hmm. case, the use case of financial markets, you don't need individuals to be able to run their own node. That's not what matters because it's not just, it's just like technically not possible to do that, which is why Bitcoin doesn't do it um, as a technical limitation. But what you need is you just need the system to be open for all. It needs to be accessible for all. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to be truly peer to peer or truly censorship. All these things kind of naturally happen because you're, you're, it's all part of the same movement, but the, the, the fundamental thing that's required is accessibility for everybody and it needs to be open. And so the way that works in practice is corporations are typically will, will become the entities that run the nodes, right? These nodes are extremely expensive to operate. Let me tell you, at CoinMetrics, we operate a Solana node, literally costs like tens of thousands of dollars in AWS bills alone per month, okay? That's on a per month basis. These things are extremely costly to operate because they have high throughput because they're managing a lot of things, right? It's not something that an individual will be able to, to, to operate, but the corporations will operate. It's like you're, you're making it a free market of corporations rather than like enforcing it from the state level. You just see like overall, there's a general trend from the state to corporations. This is another example of that, right? Yeah. Um, so no, that so, makes sense. It's kind of like at the base layer, if you think about all the stuff back in like web two terms, the base layer used to be of the financial system, like some type of gold, like 
that is underlying all of the different things that are moving. And, and then on top of that, you've got this, what you're describing is this huge, you know, just all kinds of different instruments, financial instruments that you can use to either hedge your bet or to make more money or to use debt or whatever it is. But the, like all of those things that are going on versus like an underlying asset that's like, maybe you'd say slow and is really just there as like, as the store value asset, those are two completely separate camps, right? For thinking about it. Yes, totally. Crypto. Like, like money is, is a dedicated thing. Money is one thing. Financial infrastructure is a different thing. Hmm. Um, so yeah, John, John Pfeffer actually wrote about this all the way back in 2017. Okay. So it's almost five years ago. Um, and he describes Bitcoin as a store of value and everything else is essentially working capital working with the, the, the purpose of working capital is to use the working capital. It's something that you don't want to, it, let me let put it, let me put it this way. When you spend your, your dollars, you presumably are doing that because you are receiving something that is more valuable in return, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what determines what, why it's more valuable? That's a long discussion of itself. The point is, is that you're getting rid of the, of the asset. You're getting rid of it. You don't want it. You want the thing that it's giving you. And so that's what working capital is used for. Working capital is used for utility and it has to exist, um, but it's different from a store of value, right? And the real, the real important thing with Bitcoin, the reason why I really differentiate Bitcoin from, from these financial blockchains is that the, the money, see the the money has to be decentralized. It cannot have a third party, even if that third party is a network of corporations that are operating nodes, you can't have, it needs to be truly peer to peer. It needs to be from one person to the other for everybody. And, um, that's, that problem is solved in a different way than, than building the global financial system, right? Okay. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. So essentially like Bitcoin is digital money and Ethereum is digital finance. It is kind of like where we land. Yes. But then, but then I guess walk us through, there is this history between Bitcoin and Ethereum where for the longest time people, and maybe still people today are kind of like, Ethereum is going to beat out Bitcoin um, for that use case of like being and and using some of their term terminology, ultrasound money. So Ethereum, I you know just to kind of tee you up a little bit, Ethereum has been caught in this middle for the last whatever two three years of is it going to be a competitor to Bitcoin? For the long time it was trying to be. Now it's trying to like pivot and be a competitor to these new chains like Solana and Avalanche and your your argument is now that now they're going to lose both battles right yeah so there's something called the founder's dilemma and I'll get back to it there are two ways to assess value of these cryptocurrencies every cryptocurrency has these two these two things um, they just make they just make different trade-offs the first, the first way to assess the value is on what's called like its monetary goodness. So like on a, as, as a monetary good, meaning as money, how good is the money? 
what's the quality of that money? I'll get back to that in a second. The second way to, to assess the value is what, um, how, how valuable is the network that it's used within? Um, and I'll get back to that in a second as well. So let's, let's, de- let's break both those things apart, right? So there's monetary goodness and then what I call bandwidth. Monetary goodness, bandwidth. For, for assessing uh, like uh, how good is the money, see, this is something that, for assessing how good is the money, people think that the idea is for number to go up, right? Whatever, whatever number is going up the fastest, that's the, that's the most good money. Uh, that's, that's not the way it works, right? Because that's not how money, that's not, those aren't the requirements for money. The, the requirements for money ultimately are predicated on the, um, the monetary policy. How credible is that monetary policy? The reason why everybody knows that fiat currencies are a total joke is because central bankers don't credibly control the monetary policy. It's all over the place. They're printing money. They're pulling money back out. They're printing other, they don't even have any idea what they're doing. Right. Uh, and so that monetary policy is not credible and therefore is not a good monetary good or sorry, sorry. It's not a quality monetary good. Um, so with Bitcoin, the monetary policy has been fixed since day one has never changed 21 million cap, uh, and it's never going to change because that's exact. That's what Bitcoin is optimizing for: is monetary quality, monetary goodness. Um, as a as a slightly as a as an additional note to to measuring the quality of the money is how decentralized is it. And uh, because what you, if it's money, you should be able to transact peer to peer without any third party. And the only way to do that is to run your own full node. And if you don't have, if you're not running your own full node, you are depending on a counterparty in some way or another. You're depending on some third party. So uh, you can also measure. You can also measure what's the cost to run a full node. Cost to run a Bitcoin mm-hmm. node, maybe like what two or three hundred bucks. I mean, maybe yeah. give give or take. Ethereum node, you're gonna have to have. I mean. <laughs> Who knows? You're gonna have to spend maybe we'll call it two thousand, but like really, even with two thousand, the average person is not really gonna be able to do it because the software is like so broken. You have to like sort of be a software developer, and so you have to like pay a software developer to do it. Even then, it's like not fully functioning. We'll just call it two thousand. It's worse, but not terrible. And then you get to Solana, Avalanche, these chains. It costs tens of thousand dollars per month to operate these nodes. Right? The cost to operate a node is a good measure of the level of decentralization and therefore the level of peer-to-peerness, which, which will support uh, the monetary goodness of the asset. Okay, so that was point number one. That's, like, that's the first way to, to, to measure the value of these assets is like, as a, as a money, how good is it as a money? Okay, the, yeah. second, the second way to value these assets is uh, what I call the bandwidth. Right. So, right. Here's the way I I describe it to people. Whenever you go to your mobile phone provider, call it Verizon, AT&T, whatever you, you pay for five gigabytes per month of data. I think these days it's like unlimited mostly, but you know, people know that you you're spending 
$50 a month, you're getting five gigabytes of data. In this business model, you are purchasing bandwidth on their network. And uh, the same is actually true with these cryptocurrencies because um, like the, if you, let's think about the, the use cases for Ethereum, right? So you can create an NFT, you can participate in a lending protocol, you can vote in a DAO. If you are using Ethereum in any way directly, you have to have ETH the asset. In order to participate in the network, you have to have ETH the asset in order to pay the, the network, the transaction fee, right? There's a transaction fee, which goes to the miners slash validators. Um, you're, that's, your, that's the bandwidth that you are purchasing. In order for you to utilize the DeFi network, you have to have a theory, ETH the asset. That's, that's the, the value assessment of number two. So um, there, like the, the way it works is like Bitcoin has basically hit a home run with value, with value metric number one, right? Nobody's even close. Ethereum is the closest, but if you look at Ethereum's monetary policy, it's all over the place. It's never been fixed, which like begs the question, like who the hell's changing this thing? Why are they changing it? Do they have inside information? Why, why is this thing changing? It's no, it's not credible, right? But um, mm -hmm. Ethereum is probably the next sec this next best. Um, in this value metric number two of like measuring bandwidth, um, it's basically like see the um, well the basically Solana and Avalanche and these other alt layer ones are are of more utility as bandwidth than Ethereum, and the reason and so I'll explain why so. Bandwidth, the problem with bandwidth as a value assessment, I call it bandwidth, John Pfeffer calls it working capital. The problem with this type of capital is it's a race to the bottom. It's a race to, to the cheapest solution mm. because what you're really trying to do as the network is capture as much usage as possible. You wanna capture the market because it's a competitive market, right? You're, you're trying to capture the market. And in order to capture the market, you basically have to offer the cheapest product. Um, I talk about this in my piece, literally I, so I pay my, my local internet provider, like 50 bucks a month or whatever I pay. And it, I, my understanding is they don't even make any margin on my, my, my payment. Like they don't even make any money, right? They, they're not turning a profit on my money. What, what they, what they do is they will collect my data and sell it to advertisers. That's how they make, that's how they make margin, which that's a whole problem in and of itself, but, but just to stay on topic, that is how little that they value bandwidth. It's literally worth zero to them. They're willing mm -hmm. to cut to break even and not make any money on the bandwidth. So the whole problem with bandwidth is it's a race to the bottom and the cheapest solution wins. And Solana, Avalanche, these are way cheaper solutions than Ethereum. So the unfortunate thing with Ethereum is it's like this stuck in the middle ground between these two types of value and it hasn't won either battle. Like it's lost both battles. Um, and so I, I can go further, but I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Yeah. And no, that's very interesting. And when you're talking about like the, the race to the bottom, the cheapest you're talking, are you talking mostly about, um, like fees that you're paying in order to transact as a, on the user side? Correct. So like the, the fallacy that the Ethereum maxi 
cult people have is that they think that people will be willing to pay high fees in support of this romantic thing that is decentralization. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so they think they, they're of the opinion that people will just pay higher fees. And currently that's actually what's happening, but let's set aside current market conditions because that's a whole different topic. Um, but right. So to answer your question, yes, like the, the payment to the, the, the cost is the fee to, in order to participate in the network. It's basically how much are you paying for that band, like your allotted bandwidth. Um, okay. That's very interesting. I mean, one, one thing I just want to touch on that you mentioned was when you're talking about like the monetary policy and the fact that like something that's always given me, um, you know, I, I have to pause for a moment whenever I'm thinking about, well, do I put any more money into Ethereum is, is the whole fact when they changed, uh, when they did that hard fork, uh, I think in 2020 or 2021, where they started burning coins and pretty much the supply stopped growing and it started contracting. And my whole thought was like, well, how, how did, who made that decision? How did that just all of a sudden we're going to stop um, or we're going to start shrinking the supply. Um, and that, that comes back to one, the decentralization, but, um, but also that, when you're talking about, I just, I, it was so funny. We were driving back from Chattanooga today. I, I um, listened to Thank God for Bitcoin again with Raven in the car so that we could both kind of listen to it. And going through those, those like solid characteristics of money of it being, you know, divisible and that you can easy to move pretty much um, that you can make sure it's verifiable, but also that it has a fixed or it doesn't even have to be a fixed supply, right? It just has to be like difficult to create new, new tokens. And for Ethereum, it just seems like I can't, I just can't wrap my head around like how difficult is it to make new tokens slash how difficult is it to just completely create a brand new like protocol out of thin air without, you know, people having to vote on it. And even if they vote on it, if it's pre-mined, you know, who owns those, those tokens that were pre-mined and what are their incentives? So, yeah, listen, nobody, nobody even votes in these systems. Okay. That's, they like to pretend that that's the case. This is my shtick about the decentralization technology bucket. Number two, again, first bucket is Bitcoin. Second bucket is block uh, financial blockchains. Third bucket is non-blockchain technologies. My problem with number two is that people see the, in, in Bitcoin, there is a real cult-like culture. Like it's it's very freedom-oriented. We don't want any sort of intermediary. It's it's heavy on the belief system, right? And that's a requirement. That's a that's a that's a feature, not a bug, of of trying to accomplish bucket number one. When you're trying to accomplish bucket number two, uh, that that is a total fallacy. Okay. Cause it's an industrial use case and the, the markets won't care what your opinions are. The markets are going to choose the cheapest solution because that's the most valuable solution to the markets. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, so there's just this, this broad fallacy I see in crypto and it originates from originally Bitcoin, which where it's a feature on a bug, but it's a bug, not a feature in most of crypto, which is that, 
oh, it has to be super decentralized. You have to be able to run your own node. People will pay high fees because this is about freedom, baby. And it's like, well, you know, that's actually not the way it's going to play out, but, uh, you know, thanks for playing. Uh, the, mm. so, so I can comment on EIP 1559, which was when they changed the monetary policy yet again, uh, about, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 months back now, um, eight or 10 months back. And they basically switched it from an inflationary monetary policy to a deflationary monetary policy. So now instead of like new coins coming onto the market, you know, they're actually, it's functionally equivalent to a stock buyback. They're actually taking coins off the market, which by the way, it's the users who pay for that. Okay. It's not the holders, it's the users. So you're, 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 you're demon, you're demonizing the wrong person if you're trying to win bucket number two. Um, but, uh, the, you know, my opinion on the real reason why they did that is because see number go up is a fantastic instrument for user acquisition. If you want to, yeah. and again, if you're trying to compete in this bucket number two, what you're really trying to do is capture the market. You want, you're trying to capture as much market share as possible. And number go up is a fantastic instrument to capture the market because it's free marketing. People are, people start talking about it. People are like, oh my gosh, have you seen Sam Beckman Freed? He, he told somebody to fuck off when it was $3 and now it's at $200. Oh my gosh. You know, it's this cultural movement and, yeah. and it's good for acquiring users. And so when you, when you, when you create a monetary policy that is clawing like ETH off the market, and by the way, a lot of ETH holders have actually staked a large portion of their ETH holdings into ETH2 already, where they're already earning interest. And so you just see that you, you do have a real supply shock in Ethereum right now, um, which is which is propping up a lot of its price. But you but you go back to but you have to fundamentally go back to what are they trying to accomplish? Like, because the way I see it, there are two buckets here. Like you can either be a monetary good, you can be money, or you can be financial infrastructure. Which one do you want to be? And you have to choose because if you don't choose, you're going to lose both. Uh, mm. and, and the problem with Ethereum, this is the founder's dilemma. The problem with Ethereum is Ethereum always set out to capture bucket number two. That was always their goal. Uh, their goal was all along to create a general purpose blockchain where we build general purpose financial in- infrastructure. That was always their goal. From day one, they knew they were going to go to proof of stake because that was always their goal. Um, but, but, but see, they've already basically lost that, that to, to salon and avalanche, in my opinion. And so, uh, you're, you're like, you're faced, you're faced with the question of like, well, maybe we actually should just go after bucket number one. You know, in my opinion, listen, I, I come from a Bitcoin background. I'm Bitcoin bull, obviously. And clearly I'm very bearish on Ethereum. I'm sorry to, 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 to say that, but my honest, I, this is me speaking as a Bitcoiner, like, giving free advice to the Ethereum people. If you, if you want to maintain the value of your asset, you're better off going for bucket number one. I hear this a lot among like traditional finance people. They talk about Ethereum as the silver. So they call Bitcoin the gold and they call Ethereum the silver, right? Now that can prop up a $500 billion market cap. That could probably, or whatever it is. Yeah, it's currently like 300 billion or something. Um, that can prop it up. That, that's sufficient. Like uh, that. that's quite a large mar- total addressable market. What's not a large total addressable market is this financial infrastructure race to the bottom. Like it's just going to be worthless. Like zero basically wins. Um, hmm. 
So what do you think, how do you think NFTs played out? Like it played a role in, in keeping the Ethereum price, you know, pumping uh, at certain times. I mean, I just know in my own experience, it seems like first people made a lot of money with number go up on Ethereum, but then people made a lot of Ethereum um, either by minting their own collection of NFTs or by being a trader uh, of NFTs for, you know, the year, you know, call it 2020 through 2021 and probably still to this day. Do you think that that played a role in, in just like continuing to grow the, like to grow the user count and, and people, people just, I mean, I think you already mentioned it, but people didn't care, still probably don't care as much about the, the fees. And I remember, I mean, I just didn't know you could buy, I mean, it makes sense, but I didn't know that there are NFTs being sold on other, on other uh, networks pretty much. So I thought, okay, Ethereum is the only, is the only option if I want to buy an NFT. And if that means, and at some points there were, the fees were crazy high until the developer started, like at least with the ones I've been involved with, they did something where they made the fees come down. I don't understand what, but then I was like, okay, I can buy it now. But, um, but do you think like the whole NFT craze is like one, do you think that's keeping the price steady on Ethereum? Um, and do you see it going, do you see NFTs like moving to another platform already? So uh, yes, I do see that Solana is capturing a large amount of the new NFT traffic. Um, but um, the, the, the most bullish thing I've ever heard about Ethereum was when I realized that people were pricing NFTs in ETH, right? Like, oh, that costs uh, half an ETH, that costs one ETH. Now, pay attention to what I'm about to say. What you just described was a, the monetary goodness, okay? You described bucket number one of the, of the three buckets of decentralization technologies because you're, describe, you're, you're just defining it as a money, right? Um, and so... Uh, like I, I'm, I'm actually very much of the opinion that ETH as a monetary good, for however bad I actually think it is relative to Bitcoin, is credible enough to to be much larger than it is today, um, and basically become the digital version of silver, right? Um, but see, when they move to when they move to ETH two they're basically blowing out. They're they're basically moving the same to the same tech stack as Solana and Avalanche, and so uh, you're you're throwing that away largely. You're throwing away the monetary goodness of, of the instrument. Um, like I have a whole slew of issues with the way that that ETH as a monetary good has been has been um, orchestrated. Like namely, there was a pre mine. Uh, then there's like not a fixed monetary policy. They're clearly trying to compete with the market on a monetary basis. And like, who is doing that? I don't know. Uh, I have a lot of problems with that. Um, and and furthermore, I'll say this too. Like, look, I think we like to believe that, you know, the Robin Hooders and the Game Stalkers, the GMEs, like this populist movement, we like to believe that the people, we we move the markets. Let me, let me, let me just, tell you an honest, hard truth. We don't move the markets. Okay. It's the whales of the world. It's the, it's the hundred trillion dollars in the bond market. It's a hundred trillion dollars in the equity markets. 
those, the people who run the pension funds, the life insurance funds, these are the, these are the people that move the markets. Okay. And when they see, when they see Bitcoin has a fixed supply and a fixed monetary policy as a perfect record versus Ethereum's, which is not great. They, uh, they start scratching their chin. However, all of that said, I still think that if, if Ethereum were to really go after this, like if that was their new strategy was basically saying, forget ETH2, we're going to go as the digital silver, they could still capture a, a, a decent size of that because people in, you know, these whales of the world, it's all about position sizing for them. Right. And um, rather than them having 0% of their portfolio in ETH, they'll have a 10th of a percent of 10 BIPs. Um, and then they'll have like 2% in Bitcoin. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that, that tenth, a tenth of a percent is more than enough to, to cr- uh, make a much uh, larger ETH market cap than it is today. And it will be much larger than both Solana and Avalanche. Yeah. See, I mean, I would push back on the silver thing. I, I feel like the only reason, if you go back into like precious metal world, <laughs> the only reason we needed silver was because it was just, it was easier to actually transact with than gold. But Bitcoin is already extremely easy to transact with if you if you really want to. You know, you don't have Although, to, but if you if you really wanted to, there's no like property that Ethereum brings to the table from like a monetary good perspective that Bitcoin is not already perfected. Totally, totally. Here's the, here's the thing though, put yourself in the perspective of, of a person that manages a $10 billion mutual fund. Um, mm-hmm. you really gonna, are you really going to trust that there's only ever going to be one? <laughs> uh, like you, you will, you will hedge, you will hedge, even if you know for certain that Bitcoin is way better in every, mm-hmm. in every dimension, you will still hedge because you have to do it. It's a risk management requirement. I mean, yes. And, and sitting here today, that is what I'm doing. I mean, I, I hold, I hold Ethereum and literally for that reason alone, not that it will like overtake, I'm not one of these like, oh, it's going to be a, there's going to be a flippening, but mostly I'm hoping that it goes to 10 and then I'm hoping to put most of that, uh, into Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Um, you're trying to trade it. Yeah. And just mostly because, you know, friends of mine are like, it's going friends they're like it's going to 10 it's going to 10 i'm like all right if it goes to 10 i'm putting it all in the bitcoin uh because that's the one i actually get and understand but it's been very stagnant i mean i don't know if if you have any thoughts on that but the whole i mean i i can remember for a long time people were saying um it was going to double triple um all the stuff and i know people said that about bitcoin as well but um but Ethereum going to 10 versus, versus, uh, you know, Bitcoin having the same, like the same run up. Those are, those are two different, two different like market cap changes and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so anyways, all let's say I, well, I do hedge right now, but I, but more and more than I'm talking to you, I'm like, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I need to move it out and, and try a different strategy specifically on ethereum um because yeah, ethereum so is like, my second biggest uh, holding right now in crypto right so um 
I really want to, we can, we should end this, this uh, podcast talking about the markets just briefly because I, I'm extremely, extremely bearish. I've never been more bearish, but, yeah. um, but I want to, I want to first say that I, I want to be very clear. I've laid out three buckets of decentralized technologies, right? I think all three buckets are very credible buckets and will be bigger in the future than they are today, right? Everything's going to experience growth. And I think that the concept of uh, financial blockchains is, is a big deal and something that's going to be good for the world. And, and I want it to happen. <laughs> um, and I think it will be bigger, bigger than it is today. The question is how much bigger and um, I, I don't know how to really assess, assess that value. Like, are we just going to have a continuous rotation of new, new blockchains that come in that are even cheaper and like mm. under and capture more, like you can see it's a race to the bottom and, um, like it's almost like I view it more as like an altruistic thing. It's more of something that like I would push on the state, right? Like I would be like, I just want somebody else to take care of this. I don't want to, I don't want exposure to this whatsoever. Like, um, it's something like, yeah, I, I think that, I think that alternate, like financial blockchains are a good thing and they will exist. But when I think about what are they worth, I, I, I don't know. I mean, think yeah. about it this way. Let me say one more thing. The, what's the current market cap of Ethereum? Do you know, is it, is it three, 300 billion? Of Ethereum? Yeah. Here, I've got it pulled up. Uh, yeah, it's 336. Okay. That is a lot of money. Okay. That is a huge number. There is no way that, that, that the market cap could actually support that amount of liquidity. If people started selling their, their Ethereum, it would not support that. You're, you're telling me, okay, what's the market cap of like Facebook? Is it Facebook a trillion dollar company? Facebook. Oh, okay. Facebook is 550 billion. So you're talking about, you're telling me that this Ethereum network is somehow almost on par with Facebook. Okay. A company that's been around for over a decade is a cash printing machine. Obviously Facebook has a lot of problems. Like we could, we could talk about that if we want to, but when I, when I, when I really judge the market caps of these things relative to this whole narrative that I just described about how they're a race to the bottom and I see 300 billion, I'm like, man, I don't understand how that can, can support itself. Like eventually it rolls over. Now, when I see Solana and Avalanche and they're only 30 or 40 billion, I could probably get on board with that. Now that seems more realistic to me. Mm -hmm. um, probably still overvalued, frankly, relative to what's really there but it's more reasonable to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at, I'm on a coin, coinmarketcap.com and apparently Ethereum, it says it has a circulating supply of 120, just called 121 million coins. And the max supply is not available. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, cause you know, that's important when you're trying to figure out what, when they're there, I'm, I'm assuming using a number there you've got to have a number like like that to come up with the market cap right market cap is just the price of each coin times how many coins are out there That's and right, so yeah. and so like and if that number is really like if we really don't know exactly what that number is because 
sometimes they add coins, sometimes they burn coins. Um, to me, that I guess that's is that the point you're making that that 336 billion dollar market cap is really like it's kind of shaky. Like we don't actually know if that's true. Well, not really. So like, think about it this way. I think there are equities that will trade like a tremendous amount of their overall liquidity in a pretty small amount of time. Right. So like there are equity, there are scenarios where you'll see a 50% of the total volume, the total market cap of an equity will like trade over, over a single day. Right. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know all the details here, but there, there are instances where this, this occurs and it's not like the price collapses, right? Like, um, the, the price, it's all about market liquidity, um, which is like the, the difference in order book between your buyer, your bids and your asks. And when I see a $300 billion market cap, uh, I don't see a sufficient enough liquidity to prop that up. What I see is even if 5% sold, it would experience a tremendous crash. Um, mm. I don't know the numbers, right? I mean, maybe, maybe it's more like 25%. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I think that I, I smell bubble. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about the market. I mean, uh, what I've got pulled up right now is the, um, is on crypto quant quant.com, the, uh, exchange reserve for all exchanges, this for Bitcoin. And I'm just looking at like the number of coins, I guess that are on the reserve or that are, uh, not on the reserve on exchanges. And I'm looking at one year. And that has just been consistently going down, um, which is which is reflects some some things I've heard from people on Twitter too. Um, but that's a good sign for Bitcoin, right? In terms of people well, just saying, "I'm taking this off of the exchanges. I'm putting it in cold storage. I'm not trading it," kind of thing. I hear this argument a lot, and okay, I think that. I'm more skeptical of this this uh, metric. It's a it's an easy thing to sell, and what it's it's really useful because it helps prove to people that you should be taking your your coins off of exchanges. But again, I'll remind you that the the movers of the markets are the big guys. These are the guys with billions in these in these uh, in these assets. And mm-hmm. if it if it takes ten minutes to move a billion dollars on a blockchain, like doesn't really matter if it's on an exchange or not because you can move yeah. it very quickly. So um, it's okay. overall a good thing to, the idea is good to proliferate, but when you're, when you're using it to, to, to assess the, the state of the market, I don't think it's super useful. Okay. Okay. Really quick before we, I just thought of something uh, before we like take a look at all the, at the market, um, where do you see stable coins fitting into the three buckets? Are they in bucket number two, I assume? They are. Okay. So I know what you're getting at. <laughs> you're talking about stable coins on Bitcoin, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that might be its own, its own episode, but yeah, I, I, I've been meaning to talk to you about the tarot announcement. Mm-hmm. We haven't really talked about that. Uh, that happened. To, I tried to listen to one of Marty Bent's, uh, interviews with someone i guess who works who has worked on the tarot thing a lot of it did not make sense to me but i guess the ts the uh like the short version is that it's all these different coins are happening being exchanged on the lightning network i guess so that's my main question is like where does the lightning network for bitcoin Mm, mm. 
and where where do stable coins uh they all does all that fall into bucket number two right okay so i'm glad you brought this up this, this could probably be a whole a whole episode um but but i want to try to do point out a few things stable coin there's two stories in crypto in my opinion there's bitcoin and there's stable coins those are the two big stories those are the two things that are not going away they're sticking around for a long time um for sure the um they do belong in bucket number two um but so I've, I was actually, I've been thinking about a lot about this lately because I'm actually quite afraid that the Bitcoiners have been convinced of something that is going to come back to bite them. Um, this concept of stable coins on Bitcoin. Okay. I've, I keep going back and forth on this, but my current stance is that it's not bad for, for Bitcoin. And here's why it all, it all comes down to the lightning network. Um, so here's, here's, what's interesting. The lightning network, although it operates on Bitcoin, which is bucket number one is actually part of bucket number two. You see it, it is actually the ultimate competitor of bucket number two because transaction fees are basically zero and the throughput is limitless. That's, okay, I wanted to bring that up, but I don't want to sound like <laughs> too much of a maxi. I wanted to yes. be like, isn't, isn't Lightning on its way to, to winning the war of like the lowest cost? Uh, silently silently in the background, what's funny is you, you, you see all of this capital and this excitement around Solana and Avalanche and Terra and Lightning is just chugging away in the background. <laughs> and, and I'm just saying it's the best tech. It's the best tech that's out there. So yeah, I don't, I'm sorry to those people, but it, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the story is already written. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's hilarious okay i'm glad you said that because i was like because i know when we were down in miami we were you know we were talking about the whole chart that peter Thiel put up there about how um the ethereum is the high velocity low value and uh did i say that right it's a high velocity yeah and then uh and then bitcoin is low velocity high value um and then people were like posting on twitter I fixed it for you and putting lightning instead of Ethereum up there. Um, but then, you know, you would make the comment, does that mean that lightning is low value? So, but I don't know. I think that I, I don't even like that framing because I just feel like I transacted with someone uh, with, with Bitcoin and I sent him Satoshis and he's, he's uh, helping me with some stuff in my, like, you know, cold storage and all that kind of stuff. Like it went fine. I See, just feel like I could use Bitcoin day to day. I could get paid in Bitcoin. I could spend Bitcoin and I could save, uh, you know, a chunk of my Bitcoin for future generations too. And like, it could do everything, just about everything I needed to do. Now, when you start talking about like, well, derivatives and options and all that stuff, maybe that goes to, maybe that goes on another chain or I don't know. But for like the normal Joe Schmo, like me, I feel like it does everything I needed to do. Yeah. So let me go back to the two types of value, the two ways to value two metric types or two, 
two metrics to value these assets, right? The first is monetary goodness. And the second mm-hmm. is, ban- is bandwidth, right? Um, what's really interesting about Lightning is that it solves the bandwidth problem without sacrificing the monetary goodness. You see, now yeah. that is the secret. Um, <laughs> if this all dates back to, in my opinion, this movement in 2016, 2017, 2018 from venture capitalists in Silicon Valley promoting this narrative of blockchain, not Bitcoin, right? There is this fixation on blockchains. I see this a lot these days and it's, I don't, there's no way for me to say this like gracefully and kindly, and I'm sorry, but the thing that really stands out to me as a software developer in this space is how much people think they know technicals when they don't know technicals, right? And it's, it's, I want to be clear. I think it's a good thing. I want people to learn these things, but when you have VCs out here saying like, oh, it's blockchain, not Bitcoin. I take real, real issue with that because they're promoting basically the wrong information. You're, you're being, you're like, it's like if you were to teach math and you said two plus three equals like, or two plus two equals five, right? Like, I'm sorry, but, um, but, but no, uh, that's not, that's not the way it works. Uh, so, but here's another thing too, like most of my takes today are, is a very purist mind. And I think about these things very highly critically. I think about them technically, but there's a cultural element to this that, that I'm not super well-versed in. And that's why I think that things like Solana and Avalanche are actually here to stay is because the overwhelming cultural movement is is has sufficient momentum to to for for liftoff right um now i think that you know if you were to ask me 200 years from now yeah it won't be salon and avalanche it would be lightning network and lightning network probably do everything mm-hmm. um but uh but yeah and i like if i'm like going off on a on a limb here i would say that a lot of that i i just feel like there's a lot of um there's just a lot of criticism of Bitcoin that I think is um, not founded in the truth. And, and so if I'm a VC and I know I've got to stay within certain boundaries um, to keep everyone happy, I, even right now, I don't think I can be associated with Bitcoin with all of the energy concern and all of that stuff, even though there's people out there, I think, trying to do their best to, to change that narrative and show people um how Bitcoin can actually play a role in helping with climate change and everything. Uh, it, it is definitely not broken through the mainstream and the mainstream is still Bitcoin is, is probably bad. Um, and you should probably stay away from it. So it makes sense to me that VCs were like, well, we just need to go try out the alternatives and see where those get us. Um, but then there was such a race in the VC world, because I'm sure there's a ton of VCs that did, amazing with some of these tokens and um, things that are being built. And so there's all that people just chasing number go up on like a institutional scale. Right. And um, I think eventually everyone's going to have to look at themselves and be like, what are the basics? Like, what do we actually need done? And what's yeah. the best network what, to do that? What on? are the real world problems you see? People put, people put the cart before the horse. They find, they find a solution or sorry, they find a solution looking for a problem. Right. 
rather than just know, identifying what the problems are and then finding the solutions. Bitcoin has always done this correctly. Um, whereas like, uh, you know, things like Ethereum, it's like, if you build it, they will come. And I'm, well, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin is solving some real, some real world issues. Um, so especially for people in other countries. So like the Western Union thing, that alone, just remittances alone, I could, I feel like you could make a case that whatever energy output that alone, that they're not having to get um, how, whatever big percentage that Western Union takes, you cut that whole thing out and there's no censorship. It's like, that's big enough for me. How many people yeah. can it bank? Um, you're going to get me down the rabbit hole since all the stuff is fresh from this morning, but um okay i think that's good let's stop let's stop that there let me let me let, say one more thing okay let's just say one it. more thing yeah i i i will just re reiterate the first thing the first thing i said in this podcast like i don't feel good about saying these things because i do feel like i'm the party pooper and i'm like the guy that shows up and like i'm basically like the the i don't know i'm like the i don't know i'm the guy that people are like you know you're not supposed to say that that thing out loud but, and so it, like, it doesn't, you know, in a way it feels good to, to be right, but there, there are times <laughs> I'm not going to deny that it does, but, but like, and by the way, the market has actually proved me wrong. Right. So I could still be wrong. Um, but like, I see, I'm quite, I'm quite grim on the current market cap of Ethereum and, uh, in a way that can be counterproductive, right? If, if it blows up too much. And so I just, I'm always of the opinion that intellectual honesty is the optimal strategy and that's what I'm here to do. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Well, the Bitcoin okay. community always welcomes everyone from all, from all walks of life, even people who used to be Ethereum maxis. So, um, all right, let's talk about this market. Let's talk about... <laughs> I'm with you. I'm worried. I'm like, what are we walking into the next two, three, uh, five years? It's it's not looking great, dude. It is not good out there. I am like, okay. So if you look at the Nasdaq, the Nasdaq has already suffered substantially over the past six months. I mean, it's down. How much is it down? Uh, like forty percent, thirty or forty percent. I mean, that. Hold on, is that how much? No, 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 like 20%. Um, okay. I was about to say it's much worse than I thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, 20% is still definitely not insignificant. That is insane. Oh, for sure. But I'm here today to tell you that I'm afraid that this is only the beginning, right? I think that um, I just see so many issues with the real economy in today's world that, and then if you can attack on top of that, current GDP went negative. You're seeing Amazon and Facebook and all these tech companies post losses that we thought were funny printing machines. Like where is the growth going to come from people? Uh, it's, uh, it's not looking good. So like I'm actually more bearish on the world today than I was in March, 2020. And yeah. Uh, that I'm quite concerned. You can probably hear it in my voice, honestly. Like I, th <laughs> it's quite, it's quite bad out there, people. I don't, I don't know what to say. 
Yeah, I think the worst part is that people still, um, they still haven't woken up to it. You know, I think that most people are still like thinking, well, even if we get a bad downturn, it'll, it'll, it'll recover quickly. And um, yeah, just looking back, we might've talked about this, but I've looked back at the, you know, at the great depression, how, and how long that 90, almost 90% uh, market downturn took, it almost took three years. Yeah. That that's crazy to me. I mean, we, there's, there's no one alive today that can, that can, uh, you know, stay, I don't think that can stand up and be like, Oh yeah, I know what that was like. Um, I don't think if, if so, they'd be really, really old or they well, were a baby. There's probably a few of them. <laughs> right. But. Yeah. There might be. Yeah. But, but definitely not anybody who like lived through that and actually under like really understood it probably because what that would have meant, that would have meant that they were born in like the early 1900s for them to be like 20s, 30s by that point and still be alive. I don't think, I, I think all I'm saying is like, and if there are, there's like one or two of them. I just think that everyone is in, they're just going to be so surprised by how bad it can get. Um, and well, I guess my first question, do you think inflation, I know we talked a little bit about inflation stuff. I'm of the mind right now that inflation is going to keep is going to keep rising. I just don't see. I just don't see how it, how it it comes back down. Yeah. After... Well, keep 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 in mind that inflation numbers are year over year, and so if, that is true. And so if if it was five percent last year, and it's five percent again, then you're got a lot more than five percent, right? So the the actual met the CPI number may come down some, uh, but. Uh, yeah, here, here's the thing. Um, we are in for an inflationary five to 10 years and to be determined if it's stagflationary, whether or not we can actually see real, real productivity growth. The, um, see, the, the problem with economic, I mean, I think we're going to have a depression. I'm going to be honest. The, I think that we're going to have a, a depression in this is like a, this has a real human toll. Like you're talking about people's lives that will be lost because of this. People will die. People talk about the crisis in Ukraine right now. And they talk about 4 million refugees. Well, what happens if 40 million people starve a year from now? Uh, and uh, so I don't want to sound overly grim because here's the thing, like if it bleeds, it leads. And I don't want that to be like, I'm actually looking everywhere I can to be, to find <laughs> like some, some positive, you know, perspective uh, to be honest. The only, the only hope that I see is Bitcoin. I'm going to be real. I'm going to be real with you. Yeah. Um, price levels. That's a different thing, but just on a real, real world basis, Bitcoin is Bitcoin is hope for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a real human toll, and so what what's actually going to end up happening is that you're going to see extreme levels of financial repression, and right now that comes in the form of inflation outpacing uh, the bond yields. And so right now, if you if you're a bank and you're lending something, you're getting a lower return than what inflation is running, so you're losing buying power over that duration. Right now, that's how it's happening. 
But don't be surprised if it gets to the level of government stepping in and forcing market participants to be sellers. This is a this is an executive order 6102 type of type of model where governments will have look there. Okay, we can talk about libertarian ideals and freedom and all this all we want, but at the end of the day, we all do live in a civilized world, and what's going to happen is the least the least worst option, right? And most likely the least worst option is you're going to have to help your neighbor, whether you like, whether you want to or not. And the government is going to force, force you to do it. And um, it's very, I mean, that's such, that's just so disempowering to an individual to hear that. Like you're basically saying there's nothing I can do. Well, yeah, basically there is not much you can do. Touch on the Um, executive order that you're, that you're referring to. Executive Order 6102 was enacted by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which was the closest thing that America has ever had to a dictator. He was a ruler that led until he died. Uh, and uh, he, he uh, basically seized, he made the possession of gold illegal in, in the United States. You are not allowed to own gold. If you're owning gold, you will be held criminally, um, I don't know, offended or whatever. Yeah. But it, now, now, um, the, the real, the real message I'm trying to get across here is that it's unfortunate that we're going to live in a world where financial repression from the state will exist. Now you can ask the, the more technical detailed question of like, well, can they take my Bitcoin? Can they take my gold? Here's the reality. The reality is most of the wealth in the world is in the bond market and the equity markets. And those are the markets that are going to suffer because if you're the, if you're the state and you're responsible for fixing this problem, you're going to go for the biggest whales first. You're going to go from from the top of the ladder down to the bottom. And Bitcoin is an afterthought. It is so small right now that it won't be on the chopping block. Same with gold even. Now, I, yeah, I say that I'm, I'm speaking with conviction here, but who who knows really? People seem that governments hate Bitcoin and for good reason, but uh, but it is it is relatively small, and so it's not really worth their effort to to really to enact that. They would be expending too That's much. That's with how it is. That's the market cap right now. If okay. shit really starts to hit the fan, I mean, that is where we. That's where Bitcoiners say, "All right, now we will we will experience a." Uh, slowly but suddenly decoupling with with the nasdaq um because that money is going to flee from equities into commodities bitcoin being one of those right yeah i mean i don't think that on a, if you're asking for technical perspective i don't think that bitcoin really runs into an issue with a state until it reaches a million dollars a coin it won't be until it's a million dollars a coin that the state will really start to look at this thing and be like, okay, hold on a second. There's a, there's a, might be an issue. Houston, we might have a problem. <laughs> the pro- but they, their, their issue is going to be that for the executive order 6102, the vast majority of the gold that they seized was already in centralized vaults, you know? That is not going to be. I know that I know that you're supposed to turn in your gold for twenty dollars and some change per for whatever, and then you got it was revalued at thirty five. But they are not going to be able to. It's not going to be as easy as that, right? With Bitcoin being completely actually decentralized, not being held in any third party, um, in the, anyone's hands, 
other than maybe exchanges, here's your reminder to get your Bitcoin off of exchanges. But if you're holding it in cold storage, my, my thought is like they can try to enact legislation to make you hand it over. Um, they can try to torture you. I don't know. <laughs> like, um, but at the end of the day, I just all I'd say it will be much harder for them. It will be, they will have to expend a political or a, a large amount of political capital in order to get you to fork over your Bitcoin if you have physical possession of it. That said, look, we live, we live in a civilized world. I, I get value from my civilized world. I feel a, an obligation and a duty to, to participate in that. And frankly, uh, Look, the exchange. All of you, all of your information is KYC at exchanges, and when you pull your Bitcoin off of an exchange, it's tra- it's on the public ledger. They, they, you could, you can claim one thing or another, or you can put the Bitcoin. There's ways to hide your Bitcoin through coin joins and other privacy technologies, but at the end of the day, they're going to look at you and they're going to be like, uh, "Yeah, but like, I mean, do you actually have this? Because like, if uh, if you're like you want to be a good citizen, be like I'm. I'm a true believer in cosmic karma and like what goes around comes around, and uh, so but, you know. But the the real thing to to your point, I want to support your point. Actually, I'm just adding a contrarian take that mm-hmm. I think is useful. To your point, the, the the real value here is that they can't actually do it. They can't. They can't just like pry the Bitcoin out of your cold dead hands. I mean, literally, they cannot do that. Cold dead and, brain. Cold dead brain. Yeah. <laughs> And so it's like, it's, uh, it, it, it changes the, the position of power where the position of power was previously in the state. It's now on the individual. Right. And that is worth a lot. Yes. Because I think to your point, if your neighbor is struggling and they need help, you can voluntarily go over there and say, what do you need? I can help you. Right. We don't need the government to come in and force people to help their neighbor. I don't think. I think that people, um, I think that people will, especially if we move more, if we are, and I think it's swinging back towards people, um, swinging back towards some roots of like, what does like, how does potentially religion uh, fit back into my life? Or I know for me personally, that's even like going on. And um, so if you're, if you're going down like a path of like, okay, how does this, how does this fit in? Well, then how does it? how does helping my neighbor fit in and making sure that like, all right, it's not just me and like my family, but people who live on my street, what do they need? That kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think, and I think- doing it with charities and stuff like that. Like that's always been my big thing. Um, is just, I, if I want to help a certain cause, I can donate to that cause. I don't necessarily need the government to like facilitate that with through taxation and stuff, but I think we're definitely moving through a, a, there's going to be a change of power and that power is going to be taken from the sovereign state and given to the sovereign individual. And then individuals will essentially have to, will still have to have some rules, but there will just be, there'll be a lot less leverage uh, that the government has over us um, yeah. and a lot more leverage that the individual has. Right. Which I, I think, think is great. I think it's totally great. I think it's a rebalancing of powers. See, it's yeah. it, it, nothing exists in absolute. Like you don't want the extremes in either in either in either way, yes. because um, I think people may 
I may get some weird looks from this, but like pure, pure capitalistic markets can be exploited. They can be manipulated. If you are the whale of the world and the world has no rules, you're going to always be the whale. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then on the other extreme, you know, like obviously communism, central planning, socialism, probably not going to make it right. So the powerful thing about Bitcoin is that it just, it's a, it's like a giant mean reversion and it's, it's, a, it's a, it's just overall a more, more efficient system, but, but yeah. Um, did, I, did you really quick question? I know okay. you, you probably have to go, but did you, did you uh, watch, have you seen the new Batman? Cause if not, we need to talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Dude. I, okay. I think that that movie was really interesting to me because you know, all of the corruption that was exposed. Right. And um, it was kind of built on this, like kind of a fringe thing that this guy built uh, this following and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Pretty much to me, it, it, it made the point of like, obviously that's not how you um, not how you should enact change once, once all this corruption, like that's a terrible way to go about it. Right. But like, what is the path forward when like, all of the corruption, all of the money printing, all of the unfunded liabilities actually come to light. What is the correct way to move forward like, as a broader society so that you're not like, um, I don't know. So you're not going around killing like powerful pl- politicians and then ultimately trying to like take out uh, like all these innocent people, right? You're trying to create this transition from corruption to no more corruption. It was really interesting. Like I, I saw a lot of parallels with like, oh, I'm sure if everything was exposed, like oh, you could easily would... like see, a, you could see a scenario like that where you're trying to like take down these powerful people and all this stuff. But obviously at the end, it's like, okay, well, you don't just round people up and try to murder them on mass for, and they're, you know, vast majority of them are innocent bystanders. So yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Well, so I want to make, so you're familiar with like game theory, right? So like, yeah. Um, the prisoner's dilemma, um, computer scientists, I think it was in like, the, it was a while back, like in the sixties or something ran an experiment, a simulation where they were trying to figure out like, what's the optimal strategy for what you're talking about, which is like, how do you basically rid the world of evil? How do you bring goodness into the world? And so you can imagine a game where you have two, two participants and they have a binary decision to make. They're either going to make a good decision or an evil decision, right? So uh, door A is evil, door B is good. The, um, and so the optimal strategy, what they figured out through a simulation is the optimal strategy is to um, mirror your opponent's decision. And so if your opponent goes good, you also go good. If your opponent goes evil, you also go evil. You mm. mirror 90% of the time. And then for that other 10% where they choose evil, you actually choose good, right? So you basically have to swallow your pride, take the high road for 10% of the time that they choose evil and everything else is just mirroring back and forth, right? And then gradually, gradually goodness proliferates, right? Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. That, that dude, that movie is crazy. It was a long movie, but I was glad I, I stayed up for the whole thing. Fantastic. It was too long. Uh, I'll say it was the best Batman there is. It could have been better, 
I'll say that, but it was good. Very good. The acting was phenomenal. Like, I mean, amazing acting. Colin Farrell yeah. as the penguin did. I mean, I was so impressed with him <laughs> as the penguin. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, what's the, the, the Bruce Wayne guy, uh, Robert Pattinson, amazing oh, yeah, Pattinson. actor. I mean, all of them are great. There, there's just a phen- phenomenal cast. Yeah. Great movie. Yeah, and it looks like we're going to get another one. Yeah. So we're based, at least based on what happened at the end. So cool. I know we went long today, but, uh, uh, and I know we said at the beginning, this might be a short one. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Lots to talk about. So I'm glad we didn't miss the, this week though. And thanks for being flexible with my travel. So I think that's All it. All right. Well, until next time. All righty. See y'all. Thanks for listening.